Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Anne Ikiara. She is the Executive Director of the Nonprofit Digital Action and has a wealth of experience directing and working with social enterprises in global majority countries. She speaks six languages and has the entrancing LinkedIn tagline of author, poet, speaker, gender consultant, and social advocate. So I'm excited to dig into all of those identities. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Rora. Thank you for having me. No, I'm so excited to have you here because you know, the, the work you've been doing with Digital Action these last few months since you started has already been so interesting and fascinating to me as someone who stalks you on social media. So I'm really glad to have you here with me today to talk about it and learn a bit about you and learn a bit about the organization as well. So I understand that Digital Action protects democracy and human rights from digital threats. But before we dig into that, I actually want to know about you. So what led you there? What sort of piqued your interest in this kind of work? Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Rora. I have lived experience uh, in the effects of disinformation, misinformation, hate speech Mm -hmm. that is propagated online. Uh, In 2007, we had elections in Kenya and... uh, Owing to disinformation, misinformation, and hate speech, we had post-election violence. Mm. At that time, I was running a small organization, national organization called Nairobits. And as you may anticipate, the epitome of the violence was in the non-formal settlements. So I came face to face with young people whose livelihoods had, had been destroyed, their houses had been burned, they had lost relatives, and even some of them had physical injuries. And I remember one day a young person coming to me and telling me that their home had been burned. And as a result of that, more than a thousand people lost their lives and more than 200 others were displaced. So I understand from a lived experience perspective what this could mean at the personal level. That is why when I saw the role at Digital Action, I got very interested because I wanted to have this kind of impact globally and contribute to safer elections and protect democracy from threats. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I know very little about Kenyan politics, and I have a hunch that maybe quite a few of the listeners don't know much about Kenyan politics either. So can you give me just a little bit more information about what this disinformation and misinformation was? Like what actually led to these outbreaks of violence and displacement in Kenya around the elections? Well, actually it is something that perpetually happens in Kenya. It happened in 2007, 2012 again, and even last year, 2022, it did happen. What we have in Kenya is um, ethnicity. There are different tribes in Kenya and uh, much of our politics follows ethnic lines. So it's very easy to to have disinformation and hate speech, especially now with the digital media, along those lines. So that's exactly what happened in 2007, where uh, we used actually the phone, SMSs, to send hate messages and disinformation against other communities. Uh, 
which is how the the violence happened and uh, the same way now it's even become worse because Kenyans have embraced digital media and uh, social media more than most other African countries so it is uh, escalated disinformation misinformation has always been there in the context of elections has always been there but now it is very easy to spread because of the tools that we have in social media so that's what happened in 2007 2008 and that is how the violence happened because we we i mean the information pitted communities against each other and uh, it led to offline violence where we physically uh, fought each other oh yeah and i thank you so much for shedding light on that and i mean it does sound really difficult because there's along those ethnic lines as well that i guess it makes such a a visible cleavage for people to use and to exploit for their own political ends so it sounds really really difficult and so tell me then about digital action what does the organization actually do so digital action is a small but mighty organization started in 2019 to protect democracy from digital threats uh, we are a fiscally sponsored organization that is funded by the score foundation luminate the Makata Foundation and Open Society and the Ford Foundation and our work really is to take tech companies to account to protect democracy from the threats that are propagated on their platforms so big tech companies such as Meta Twitter and YouTube have been in- investing in, in the global majority countries so much of their investment in protecting citizens is spent in the global minority but then you and i know that much of the harm happens in the global majority countries so digital action is trying to take tech companies to account to invest as much to protect the global majority as much as they protect the global minority absolutely and for those listeners who haven't encountered these phrases before global minority and global majority it aligns more or less with sort of this idea of west and non-west or global north and global south but stresses that in fact what had previously been described as the global south is the majority of population majorities of countries the majority of land area and yet not getting the majority of resources and so yeah for those who are listening that's what we're talking about i understand that in the eu for instance there's a, there's a lot of talk about the digital services act and and things like that which will help to as i understand it to regulate some of these social media platforms are there similar initiatives and legislation underway in africa i mean i guess i want to know like this divide in resources is it related to local legislation or is it related to the biases of the tech companies or is it related to something else do you think it's related to the biases of tech companies you understand that text is very versatile it usually will go faster than registration in specific countries and it's a very complex legal situation because most of the servers of course are not based in the global majority they are in the global minority so it's very easy for a big tech company to sidestep local registration so what digital action is trying to do is to take them to account to provide safeguards not based on the level of resources that they get or the business model but also the level of harm 
that could happen. So if in Kenya, for example, or in Brazil, or in any other country, the level of harm is huge, then they should invest more in that context as much as they invest in U.S., where they get most of their business from. So that is what Digital Action is trying to do. Because right now, the model follows the money, where they get advertisements and where their, their revenue is coming from is where they invest, ignoring the global majority, where, of course, uh, much of their platforms have been uptaken by the citizens. And the effect is even worse for obvious reasons because of lack of resources to, to mitigate some of the challenges that are occasioned by that situation. It absolutely makes sense. And something that I was really struck by is when I was reading Chris Wiley's book about Cambridge Analytica as one of the whistleblowers, and he talked about how this organization had started off experimenting in Africa and trying to influence elections there and trying to like stir up different types of partisan violence there. And so it was almost in this testing ground, I suppose, for this global minority-based organization. And the consequences have just gone un- untalked about, right? Because we, I mean, we heard about Brexit, we heard about like, you know, obviously Trump's election in the US as well. I'm like, oh yeah, this is all because of media manipulation, whatever. But what we don't hear about is the harm in global minority countries, as you've just flagged. And that is why that's what digital action is trying to amplify. Because we are working with the partners, we are a frontier organization. We don't necessarily do the work ourselves, but we like to front organizations um, in the global majority that are doing different things to make that environment safe. So mm-hmm. there are different people doing different things. There are researchers, there are civic educators, there are other policy people at the intersection of policy and regulation. But Digital Action is the convener. And at the moment, we have uh, more than 140 organizations across the world. And uh, we are having a campaign to make 2024, the year of democracy, elections safe. And in 2024, over 65 countries are having elections. And uh, that is the first in a century where so many people will be having elections. And also the level of threat then is heightened because if there is no regulation and if there are no safeguards in that space, then you can see the level of harm in 2024. So we are having a campaign that is being launched on the 15th of September and we are calling it Protect People and Elections and Not Big Tech. And there are organizations in the space partnering with us to really make sure that the campaign is very strong and that the big tech companies listen and pay attention to some of the asks that we have. It actually sounds really scary because, I mean, you've just highlighted that misinformation, disinformation, hate speech had this profound and, in fact, physical effect in Kenya. And yet now we're talking about 65 different countries which are going to have elections, which could be affected in similar ways and by similar means. It sounds like we could be hearing about violence, about cooptation of democracy in countries. Like, it's it's quite scary what you're talking about. Yes, it's very, very, yeah. And that is why our campaign, Global Coalition for Tech Justice, uh, is convening 
to really protect people and not the big tech companies and call really the metas, the YouTubes and the Googles to account to protect, to mitigate that situation in much the same way as they would mitigate in the global minority to make sure we are all safe in 2024. It's really a big test and it's a big also opportunity for them to show concern and responsibility in protecting democracy. And so when you talk about protecting people and not big tech, and you've mentioned safeguards a few times, what are the asks? What are the safeguards? What could actually protect us? Okay, what could protect us is some of their policies are aligned to the West. You know, they are specific to the English-speaking context, especially. But in other countries, like in Kenya, for example, you just said in the beginning that I speak six languages. I could write in any of those languages, you know, hate speech on Twitter, and it will not be flagged unless they have found somebody or they have context-specific safeguards so that content moderators really understand that language and the, the challenges that are specific to the Kenyan context. So one ask is for them to make sure that Content moderation and safeguards are context-specific. And then the other is uh, they should be transparent because right now we really don't know what safeguards are in place. We don't know how much money is being spent, where. We really don't know. So we ask them to be transparent. You know, we are using this amount of money in U.S., for example, and we are using this amount of money to protect Kenyans as well, for example. So they should be transparent and the resources should match the level of harm anticipated and not the revenue. That is another one. And then they should also operate throughout the election period, because like you saw in the in the U.S. and like I've given you the example of Kenya, they let their guard down immediately the election happened. And then we are talking about post-election violence. So they stopped moderating. So they should put in measures before, during, and after the elections. They should offer comprehensive range of tools and measures and adopting to local context that we, we have talked about. And they should also involve governments not in the way of buying them off so that they, they are silent about the harm, but also partnering with them to make sure that the elections are safe. And not just governments, but also election bodies, civil society, they should partner with us because we are on the ground and we can point out uh, areas of concern that they can invest in. So in a nutshell, those are some of our asks. Yeah, I have so many questions about the asks. The first one that comes to mind is you mentioned that they need to put resources into protection, not just during election campaigns, but also afterwards, because as you mentioned, post-election violence. And something that strikes me, because, you know, before we started having this call, before we started recording, we were talking a lot about gender and racism. And so I guess when I think about this, I think, oh, well, yeah, post-election violence is bad. Domestic violence is also bad. <laughs> and so maybe they should have these safeguards and these moderation always. Like, why not dedicate resources to protecting people, not just in the context of elections, but to protecting people from misogyny online or racism online, which also lead to violence, right? 
Exactly. Misinformation, disinformation is a very wide subject and covers different kinds of concerns. And this is just one of them, but that is what we focus on. But even in the context of elections, it's not gender blind. Mm -hmm. Women candidates, even women election officials have been targeted with hate speech that really uh, removes agency from them as election officials and integrity. But also some of that has moved from online to physical harm to themselves. Because really, the way they are portrayed in media, in social media, can sometimes expose them to harm. Mm -hmm. And it has happened in several places where women have really been targeted and sometimes even physically harmed. And their families, even some of the harm has extended to their families. So it's not a very, it's not gender blind. It's a very gendered concept. Mm. Yes. So that is also something that should concern them. And that is why it should be context specific, because like in the context of Africa, for example, and the global majority, other global majority countries, women are are just now getting into elective positions, you know, competing for positions in the electoral space. And it's not yet a very acceptable concept in some in some areas, especially in mostly in Africa. So women are really targeted candidates especially and and it can appear very uh, interesting and very annoying because for the men nobody talks about their private lives and and or what and, they're wearing or Is what it? they are wearing <laughs> yeah but, but for women somebody will talk about what they wear who they are married to and how many children they have i don't know who they ever dated and there are all these things that are really not uh, not relevant to the electoral position that they are looking for mm-hmm. so that should also be a concern but most of these things are context specific that is why we insist that they should enable accountability at the level at the level of the context this actually makes me really curious about Rwanda of all places, because as far as I'm aware, they're the only country in the world that has majority female government. And so I'm really curious, especially given the context of their, their history, you know, it's like 30 years yeah. nearly since the genocide. I'm like, I wonder for myself, like what hate speech looks like in Rwanda nowadays around the electoral cycle and around the role of women, and if it's somehow different. Very curious. I mean, I don't know if you know this. I'm just like, ooh. That's so interesting. <laughs> Rwanda is a very progressive country and the rule of law is followed. So I'm not very familiar with that context, but my estimation is that there will always be subtle, subtle gender issues in this context, but it may not be as pronounced in Rwanda as it is in other places. Like, for example, compared to other African countries, Rwanda might be a little bit ahead, but that doesn't mean it's exclusively absent. Mm. It might be, it might be there, but it might be more subtle than it is in other countries. Mm. an estimation yeah no I would be really curious because yeah when I think about the Australian context and obviously we had Julia Gillard as as a woman prime minister and she was just shredded in media so yeah what she was wearing and her inverted commas lifestyle choices and all of these other things and it was brutal (laughs) you know the, the sheer misogyny she faced on a day in day out basis and yet people think about Australia as this theory 
developed country should be progressive, right? Like women get into governments so it can't be sexist. I was like, well, I've got news for you, buddy. Like, <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm going to leave that, that alone. There's actually something else I wanted to talk about, which is also difficult to measure because you referred to this idea of aligning funding and resources to the level of harm done on social media platforms. So how do we measure levels of harm and particularly potential harm for an election that hasn't happened yet? Yeah, good question. That is, uh, that is difficult. And one of the things that we are struggling with is that there is no baseline data. Mm-hmm. But uh, given the past elections and given the, um, the heat before elections, it is possible to anticipate that indeed we need to invest heavily here. Because like if I give an example of Kenya, because that is where I come from, elections are usually hotly contested. And it's very clear what the proponents are. So it is possible to estimate that people will be posting comments in their native languages or probably sometimes in Kiswahili. And I think the level of investment should follow that trajectory. And it should be properly monitored so that as it escalates, then also the level of protection follows. Because once you have a service that is potentially dangerous, then I think you have also the responsibility of mitigating that risk, however big it might be. Yeah, so it's a gray area, admittedly, but um, big tech companies should have the resources to do their own research and be able to anticipate the level of investment that is required in their platforms to mitigate And I don't think it is impossible because many of the factors are known long before the election takes place. Mm -hmm. And if they are willing to have partnerships with local civil society organizations that are invested in the local context and governments and electoral bodies, then it should be possible to really understand and single out the factors that constitute risk so that they are better able to mitigate long before the harm happens. It's beautifully put because, I mean, yeah, you have the concrete need for local language moderators, but as you just highlighted yourself as well, people already on the ground in civil society already know what the danger zones are. They already know something's going to blow up. And, yeah, by partnering those organisations, social media platforms and say, oh, we do actually need to to allocate some resources here. We do need to do a better risk assessment for here. Like, it it absolutely makes sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Risk assessment should happen in every context. And that's actually one of our requirements, one of our asks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For you to make it context-specific, then risk assessment must take place in that particular context. So tell me a bit more than about this campaign you're launching. How do people get involved? Like, How does the campaign work? Okay, the way it works is that uh, over the past one year, we have been researching and trying to find out the best method to coordinate and cooperate with people. And it's been a very consultative process in which we have talked to different people globally. So in June, we launched our website 
in which different people and organizations, both individuals and, and organizations across the globe, could sign and agree to our regulations because they are for any any organization, any coalition, they are asked to be something that is bringing you together. So they needed to agree on our campaign asks. Since then, 140 organizations and individuals have signed on. We call it a coalition for tech justice. That's the name that we have given it. And then together, we are having different activities. We are having the official launch in September 15th, the International Day of Democracy. That's when we are having the launch. After that, then there will be different activities to highlight what we are doing and by different organizations that have already decided to partner with us. And of course, tied to that is what I talked about earlier, writing to big tech companies specifically to ask them to make the environment uh, safe, equitably across board. And different organizations will have different activities, even individuals will have different activities, or to create a lot of visibility around the issue of digital harm. And we shall monitor different elections that are happening in, in 2024 and make sure that uh, we understand the level of harm and the safeguards that have been put in place so that then uh, the year 2025 will be having some data to take big tech companies to account uh, and to ask for policy direction now based on hard data that we are going to have collected from monitoring the elections. Amazing. And yeah. a huge project, a huge campaign. Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and you'll be surprised the campaign is run by four people within Jeto Action. Our team is small, but we have the bigger network to front our case. Amazing. I love yes. that. So something else I'm curious about is... The sheer confusion of the social media landscape at this point in time. Obviously, we've seen Twitter has become X with some horrible looking branding and it's obviously sort of falling apart. You know, people talking about the dark days of Twitter, the fall of Twitter. We've seen similar things happen with Reddit in terms of there was a lot of fuss about the APIs being cut off, apps no longer being used. We've seen migrations to Mastodon servers, to Lemmy. Kbin, we've seen as well the launch of Threads, which you know after the first three days I heard nothing about. Who can we even talk to in this environment? Like who who are the people? What are the correct platforms? This sounds like such a confusing, huge puzzle. <laughs> Digital Action has written letters to specific people that are responsible for exactly what you have described. We have, through our own networks, we have identified people who are responsible for making the platform safe at Twitter, at Google, at, at YouTube, and at TikTok. And we have written specifically to them. And actually, the deadline for them to respond to us is the 4th of September, in anticipation for our launch on the 15th. It's not as faceless as it, it might look. Because there are people running those offices, there are people who report to that office every day, and their task is to make the platform safe. So we have written specifically to those people 
to make sure that they tell us what exactly they are going to do for the 65, more than 65 countries that are having elections in 2024. And what does that look like for the decentralized platforms like Mastodon, for instance, like Lemmy and Kabin, where there's not one person in control or one company in control? For example, for Mastodon, I'm on a server for social scientists, which is managed by social scientists and you have to like be a social scientist to be accepted. But I mean, there's heaps and heaps of different servers and they all have their own rules. I mean, Truth Social, like Trump's network is a Mastodon server. And I mean, I'm assuming you can't really write to that server of it, whoever's running that server and say, hey, would you mind just not using hate speech? Is that cool with you? <laughs> like, so how do you deal with this decentralization issue? We have to find strategies to deal with because it's evolving. It's an evolving threat. Every day is something that is different. So it's something that uh, we should anticipate as we, as we continue because they are evolving threats every day. That's why this field is very challenging. And it's also very exciting because you see different things every day, which you might either anticipate or respond to as they evolve. So that's another new challenge. Yeah, it sounds really difficult in the era of decentralization and sort of fragmentation of the social media landscape. At least with targets like Meta, like Google, you do have, as far as I'm aware, the majority of the world's population on there. So they're pretty good targets for reducing harm in the interim. Yes. They also have a very, very wide reach. And in majority countries, there is quite a sizable chunk of the population have access to those platforms. So, I mean, you put your resources where the harm is greatest and where you can score big wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's part of our thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There's actually something else I want to ask you about because I've been so curious about your identity as an author and a poet since I saw that on your LinkedIn. I love that that's your LinkedIn tagline. I love that it's there. You know, you have this creative component to your personality. You've got your soul on display. So so tell me, what kind of things do you write? What is your poetry about? My poetry is about justice and equity. That's what I write about. Yeah, okay. You're not surprised, no? I'm not surprised at all. (laughs) I write about equity and human rights and and democracy. I'm a child of, as you may assume, from parents that experienced colonialism. So there's a bit of of that in my poetry. My book actually is that I have a manuscript that is currently going through editing, that is about my experiences in the nonprofit sector and the inequalities that exist in that space mm-hmm. for, for people of color mm-hmm. and the colonial aid system structures that follow the same trajectory as colonialism did. I also write about women's rights mm-hmm. and, and gender issues. That's my passion. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, to me, it sounds like we would be better off having your writing circulating on social media than disinformation, for sure. <laughs> we would learn a lot more. <laughs> be a lot- yes, yes. I hope it will circulate uh, soon. It usually happens that disinformation spreads faster than positive messages. I think that's the way human beings are. 
It's true. I mean, we've got that negativity bias, right? And threats are more immediate and more important and pressing than things that make us feel good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So tell me, if you had a magic wand and you could use it to change one thing about the digital landscape, what would you do with your magic wand? You do any one thing. I would make all platforms safe for the 2 billion people that are going to have elections in 2024. I would just wave my magic and 2 billion people will be safe. Mm -hmm. There'll be no disinformation, no misinformation, no hate speech. Mm -hmm. So democracy would thrive and people would have their agency because disinformation robs people of their agency because these spaces target messages at you that skew your thinking. And that's, of course, taking your agency away from you. So citizens in those countries would have their agency, we would have the best leadership, we would have the best democracy. There would not be any hate speech. There would be serenity in all of the world and we would interact in those platforms to, you know, to have messages of hope and peace and, and progression not uh, how to hate on each other and how to make life difficult for each other, rather to progress. And we discuss things that are great for, take us forward rather than that divide us. I love that answer. You know, sometimes, sometimes when I ask you a question like this, they'll be like, mm, I would change this program to be something different. And you're like, no, no. With my magic wand, I'm going to cause world peace. <laughs> yes. I love that. I love that. And why not, right? I mean, that's what you're doing with digital action. That's, that's the whole end goal. So good on you. And on the more personal level, do you have any recommendations for us as individuals and as listeners? Like, what should we do if we think something is disinformation? I would urge citizens, private citizens, not to spread misinformation, disinformation, hate speech. Verify information before you pass it on because the platforms are powerless without us participating in the disinformation, in spreading disinformation and hate speech. So don't spread hate speech. Verify the information before you spread it. And instead of spreading disinformation, spread the right information that is bringing peace democracy and promoting human rights to the world, both in the global minority and global majority. All people are the same. We are all human. And I think that's the way we should see ourselves. Amazing. So look, and thank you so much for joining me today. For those who are interested in learning more about your work, whether as a poet or on the behalf of digital action, <laughs> where can they find you? Okay. Our work is on www.digitalaction.co. That's where you can find our campaign materials. You can find our asks and you can find our coalition partners. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about digital action and the global coalition for tech justice and how people can partner with us to protect people and elections and not big tech companies. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. And, and for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. 
For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.